Thank you for listening to this podcast episode from Bose Church. We pray this message blesses and encourages you. If you don't belong to a local church, we would love to see you on Sunday morning. Who are you? Not who do you think you are, but who are you? Right? I'm, I'm, it's a real question. I, I wonder if asked that question and you had 24 hours to sit down and write down a definition, how, how would you define you? And I wonder if you, if you took that paper, that, you, that, that, that 24 hours of defining who you are, and then you went and you took that paper and you showed it to your loved ones. I wonder if they would validate what it is that you use as a definition for you. And then on the same token, I wonder if you took that definition to your workplace and showed it to your coworkers or your bosses or whoever it is that you work with, uh, your employees. I wonder what they would think about your definition if you showed them the same thing you showed your loved ones. If it was the same Paper. Would the thoughts of your family and your coworkers be consistent? Would they have the same perception of you? You see, we, we live in a world where it's oftentimes compartmentalized. We have what we would call the sacred. That's our home. That's our most intimate place. Um, and then we have what's called the secular. This is the, the world out there. Anything that's, whether it's places where you live, work, and play, I mean, it's just out, out there in the, the sphere of your influence. And um, oftentimes, these two worlds don't collide, right? They, 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 they don't intersect, and we try to avoid the collision, don't we? We're not always trying to bring these two worlds together, which is why everyone hates their work Christmas party. Right, because you're walking around with your spouse like a robot, like nothing to see here, right? We're just being, everyone act normal. Um, Nobody gacked out of line, right? When the worlds intersect, at times it can be a little bit awkward. And we relate to this idea, I think. We relate to this compartmentalization, this this distinction of worlds. Um, I mean, think about movies and TV. You got Bruce Wayne and Batman, right? It's same person, but they function very differently. And we, we love relating to the individuals who have the best of both worlds. Like, like who wouldn't want to be Bruce Wayne? Right? You got this sick pad, and you got this slick car, and you got tons of money. And then, oh, yeah, the, the, the compartmentalization. When I'm not being this rich guy, yeah, I go out and I save the world. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to be that guy. It's just not my story. <laughs> We want the best of both worlds. When I was growing up, there was this show on Disney Channel called Hannah Montana, who was really Miley Cyrus. Um, first time some of you heard that name in church. Uh, and the premise of the show was this. Miley was this pop icon who, you know, was this celebrity, but, the, you know, she wanted the, the, she wanted the sacred. And so in order to have the sacred, what she would need to do is she need to put a a wig on and off to distinguish who she was, and no one ever knew, and she had the best of both worlds. Get the limo and the show. 
That's the song for those of you that didn't know. But even in the song, it says you get the best of both worlds, and we watch these types of things. These these capture the imagination of individuals. You got Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Clark Kent, Superman. We love the story of double life because for most of us, we've learned that there needs to be a distinction between the secular and the sacred. This is real. I mean, I, I feel this pressure even as a pastor very much so, where, where um, well, I have Christian liberty and it's not a sin, but okay, if I broadcasted the entirety of my life, would everybody agree with every decision that I make or everything that I do? And, and do you want to open yourself up to that scrutiny? Right? So, so it can be easy to say, okay, well, I'm going to give a perception or I'm going to present a certain way to the, the, the secular, like the outside world, but in the sacred, in the most intimate places, we want to be safe. And so we've all experienced what, what um, uh, ju- judgment that people can offer. We've all experienced shame. And so um, the sacred, the, the necessity to have a distinction is not just smart, but it's also safe. You know, what if people knew? In our text this morning, we're venturing into the last chapter of Ephesians chapter 6. And what we find is there's this continuation of thought. Right, the, the, the first part of Ephesians, we, we've said, is kind of in the sky or, or in the stars. And Paul gives this, this lofty, beautiful picture. And he, he lays down this theology and he says, hey, this is God. This is man. This is grace. This is redemption. And, and he teaches us. And we, and we eat that up and we love it. And it's amazing and it's beautiful. Um, and then he shows us that we're all waiting on this but God moment. And but, but God, who's rich in love and kindness and he gives us life. He gives us salvation. Um, and, and halfway through this letter, there's this prayer at the end of Ephesians 3. And it's a transitional portion of our, of our, of our book where Paul says, yes, this is God. This is man. And he's given you salvation. And he's like, and I don't want you to just know this. He, he says, my prayer is that, that, that what I just said, that you would know beyond understanding He's not saying know the unknowable. You, you, you can very much understand who God is, who man is, what grace is, salvation. You can understand that stuff. He says, but I want you to know beyond understanding. He goes, I want this to transcend the head, and I want it to make it to the heart and the hands. I want this to make it to the ground. I want to take what's up here and, and show you that it's not just a, a theory, but this gospel, this, this good news. He says, it's not just something that's 10,000 years from now. He goes, but it's right now. that God's gospel is good news for today because it's a transformative work in your life. It's becoming a new person. Paul saw the necessary byproduct of the gospel as a need to now, in Ephesians 4, 1, live worthy of the calling. Like in light of you going from death to life, he says live. That was the, the crux and that moved us into the, the second portion, the in the dirt, on the ground portion of our text, of our series. And, and Paul says that the gospel informs our work. He says it informs our relationships. And then today, it's almost as if Paul connects both of those worlds and he brings them together. And he's taking us to this place where we might understand that the gospel has given us new life and this, this transformative work, this new, this new life is not that Jesus just transformed your sacred, but he also transforms your secular. And guess what? You aren't called to a duplicitous life. We don't get to be 
Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. We, we don't get to have Saturday night the way we want it and then show up on Sunday morning act like that's okay. You, and, and hey, you know what? If that's where you're at, you're still at the Saturday night scene and you're here, awesome. I love it. Welcome, right? I'm, I'm glad that you come and sit under the teaching of God's word. But if your place is that, you, hey, I've given my life to Jesus, and we ought to expect this transformative work to start beginning. And there is a portion where we start putting things to death. Um, and so um, there's a, we, don't, we don't carry two identities. We have one identity, and it's in Christ. And when Paul begins to speak to the secular, he's going to give us some instruction that if we were to really obey and follow that we would begin being freed from the need of pleasing people. The need of, I mean, I don't know about you, but this text was, was a coming after my own heart this week. Because I don't know about you, people pleasing is a challenge for me. Because really when you think about it, the pressure to compartmentalize our worlds really comes from a pressure of pleasing people. And people pleasing as old as, as mankind, it's, it's not new. It's not a byproduct of social media. It's not a byproduct of a self-esteem training. It's not a byproduct of a tolerance movement. It's not something new that we're dealing with. Let me share something with you. God hates people pleasing. God hates people pleasing. Um, even in my prep this week, that killed me to write down because I love as little, as much conflict in my world as possible. I love when everyone is happy with me. And guess what? I'll tell you what, that's not very often. Where everyone is just happy. Um, uh, my good friend Gary Schwartz, he shared with me uh, when I was becoming the pastor here. He said, Tyler, it's impossible to please all the people all the time. And it's increasingly becoming more difficult to please some of the people some of the time. And that was truth. But God hates people pleasing. I, I think of the words of the apostle when he says this in Galatians chapter one, verse 10. He says, obviously, I'm not trying to win the approval of people, but of God. If people pleasing were my goal, I would not be Christ's servant. I wrote it this way. God's word reveals to us the incompatible relationship between people pleasing and serving Christ. Like if you go right back to Galatians 1.10, he says, if people-pleasing was my goal, I could not be a servant of Christ. He says, these worlds don't intersect. You're, gonna, you're not gonna have two masters. He says, you'll, you'll hate the one and love the other. Like, it's impossible to have the best of both worlds where, yes, I'm peeping, pleasing the world and I'm pleasing Christ. It's like, no, it's impossible. And I know the temptation. I know the temptation is so easy to justify people-pleasing. Because at the end of the day, you can just chalk it up to, hey, I'm just trying to love people. Is loving people so bad? Loving people seems like a really thing, like a biblical thing. But lest we be confused, this is what 1 Thessalonians says about the heart and people pleasing. 1 Thessalonians 2, 4, for we speak as messengers approved by God to be entrusted with the good news. Our purpose is to please God, not people. He alone examines the motives of our hearts. If our motive is people-pleasing, our explanation to disguise that will not, I repeat, will not fool God. Like at the end of the day, if your heart is, I just want the, the attention and the approval of people, you will not fool God. He knows the hearts of humanity. And so we're left with a question. 
How do we do it? How do we get liberated from the thoughts and opinions of others? Because I don't know if, you, if you're in that world and you're trying to live for, and please people, um, there's a lot of pressure that gets associated with that. A lot of pressure. It becomes suffocating. It becomes debilitating. And it can be impossible. And yet, I don't think anybody wants to be that way. I don't think anybody wants to feel suffocated or paralyzed. Now, um, there's not a, a way to have the best of both worlds. I'm not, that, Paul is not going to teach us that. As we get further in our text, I believe the word will shed some light and give us some direction on how we might begin seeking the approval of God more than man. And that's really, it's always going to come down. It's always going to come down to a fight for affection. Do we love God in such a high regard and put him in such a high esteem that it drowns out the approval of people? If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Ephesians 6. Children, obey your parents because you belong to the Lord, for this is the right thing to do. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. If you honor your father and mother, things will go well for you, and you will have a long life on earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them. Rather, bring them up with the discipline and the instruction that comes from the Lord. Okay, um, Paul's not a parent. Paul's not a daddy. You don't have kids, and yet he's going to tell you how to parent. Believe it or not, I don't have kids either, and I'm going to tell you how to parent. No, um, this is the word of God. This is not me. Um, Paul gives a challenge to the children. He gives a challenge to fathers. And now, one of these challenges is more applicable to the, the overarching congregation than the other. Why? Because all of us, at some point, whether you had a great relationship with your parents or not, all of you have been a child before. All of you have been birthed with 42 chromosomes, 46 chromosomes. <laughs> and honestly, the reason how I realized it was 46, I just remembered that 23 and me test. So I was like, okay, 23 and me times two. Um, 46 chromosomes. You, you've all been, a, a, you've had a, a father and a mother that, that came together and birthed you. I know revolutionary thought here. I'm a genius. And guess what? Not all of you in here are ever going to be a father. Again, revolutionary thought. 50% of the room is eliminated from the possibility. You guys must think I'm a genius. But hear this. Children, the one that's all of all of us have, have experienced it at some point. Obey your parents because you belong to the Lord. This is the right thing to do. Some of you, de depending on your home life, could hear something like this and shudder. Right? Whether it be because you came from a home where there was some type of abuse, or your parent was wrapped up in addiction, or where there was no stability in the home, and while I don't think that's much of the room, I know it's some of the room. And, and I wonder for, for those that, that maybe came from a home in that situation, I wonder, what it, I wonder how that command hits you. I wonder how that comes across for you. But um, how do we honor dysfunctional parents? What does God expect of you in this command, right? First he says obey, but then the very next thing he goes to is he says honor, and so how do you dishonor functional parents? Like, what does God expect of you in light of this command? Well, let me frame this a little bit more so you fully understand what I'm, what I'm saying, what I'm talking about. Um, 
all of us, if we could be honest, come from some level of dysfunction. It's just normal for you, though. Right? Um, one of my favorite comedians, this uh, short little Italian guy, Sebastian Maniscalco, um, he has this great bit where he says, he goes, you know, my whole life I'm, I'm being raised in this home and, and my parents, like, they, like, they had this book and this book was teaching me how to do life. And he goes, and then I became an adult and I go out into the world and I realized nobody else got the book. <laughs> right? Right? Like, how many of us, you know, our world, our home, our sacred had taught us about life? And then you go and you start seeing other people and how they do life and you think, that's so weird. That's so wrong. Like, didn't they read the book? So we all have some level of dysfunction. Just operate with some other sinners for a little bit and you'll see. Um, but that's not, I'm talking about something that's, that's far more detrimental, something far more unsafe, something far more um, harmful. And so I think, I hope that frames you a little more, you know, the kind of dysfunction I'm, I'm talking about. And how do you honor them in those moments? Well, especially when you're a minor, this is, this is different. Um, I don't think Paul is saying that honor looks like being a prisoner within dysfunction. I don't think Paul is saying be a prisoner within dysfunction. I don't think that's, I don't think he's saying that honor looks like staying in a herd of dysfunction. Um, Proverbs 13, 20 says this, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. I believe biblical honor would call you to a higher ground, not necessarily, hey, as an adult, and maybe you said, hey, I came from a world of a, a terrible addiction, a terrible abuse, and I'm not saying, hey, you have to live in that world, but I think the Bible would call you to a higher ground. Um, I believe the Bible would call you to, I believe honor would look like forgiving your parent for the harm that they may have caused you. I think honor looks like letting go of the expectation of the parent you desired and realize that they themselves were operating out of their own brokenness. And, and I think as we look at the first command, though, of obey, um, I think it's important that we consider this word child here. Um, the, the, the Greek word used for children in Ephesians 6, 1, refers to dependent offspring. And so dependency is naturally associated with a, with a younger age, right? Like uh, my home, my rules, like that, that, that kind of applies here. You know, because I said so. Uh, you, that parent, that, that excuse lives for you. You can use that. Um, because here I, I, I see this, this the dependency as a, as a child is dependent on the parent. There is this expectation that the, the, the child would follow uh, the, the rules that have been laid out by the parent as the authority of the home. In other words, obedience to one's parents is required until one is of age. The command to obey is not given to adults, but it's given to minors, those that are still dependents uh, uh, on their parents. Now, I believe honor and respecting far outlives um, being a minor, but the call to follow your parents' order does have an expiration date biblically. If, if I have my folks over for dinner and some back talk starts happening and my dad says, go to your room, guess what I don't have to do? I don't have to go to my room. Um, 
That's not, that, that would be weird if that happened. Okay, if that's still your relationship, let's have some family counseling. We'll go and we'll do it, all right? But the, that relationship changes in time. That's healthy and right and good. Um, but honor doesn't. You should, for the rest of your days, as long as your folks still have air in their lungs, honor them. It's important to, that we see the difference there, though, in, in, in way of obedience as a child, but honor uh, is all of life. And so um, it would be easy if the call was just honor and obey parents that were loving, kind, and good, period, right? Like, uh, we'd love to follow that command. But the call is to honor and obey parents who themselves are imperfect, who are broken, and a lot of times just doing the best with what they got. And so um, would we be people of grace and understand that? And, and then the call to fathers. Um, the, the Greek word is actually to both parents, but, but some scholarship would argue that Paul is making a hard charge to fathers. And so really we could say, hey, parents, this is really for all of you, but especially dads, listen up. Um, I, I think that's, that's a, a fair way to, to say this. He says, don't provoke. And he says, and instruct your children in the ways of the Lord. And so while it's important that children honor and obey, it's especially important for you as parents to consider where you're leading them towards. Where, what direction? Like if the weight that God has put on you is to guide and direct, then where is it that you're pointing them? What journey are you taking them? What high calling, what a high calling, isn't it? And so where are we to go? Thankfully, the text says, lead them in the ways of the Lord. Listen, Fos Church is committed to discipleship. We believe it is the commission of the church. It's the job. It's the goal. It's why we exist. Like when you walk through those doors and you see that metal sign to your left, um, what that is, Foe's Church exists to make disciples. And we exist to make disciples. That, that, that's not age contingent. Right? So, so when, when um, Decker Ruzinski, who was born two weeks ago, here, is here, our call is, hey, we have to disciple him. When, when Kit Carson is going to turn 93 here in a few months, our call is to disciple him. Right? And so whether you're two weeks or 93, like we exist to disciple people. That's our commission. Um, and so with that said, even with our children's ministry, with our sign, Shine exists to partner with parents to make disciples. Like, disciples is what we're about, instructing them, pointing them in that direction. But parent, I want you to hear something from this text very loud and clear. The call of instruction and in raising a child, uh, your child is first and primarily put on your shoulders, not us. We partner, we help, we exist for that reason, but God has given you a weight. He's given you the instruction. And we're living in a world right now where, where parents are getting chopped at the knees, and I'm telling you, the word of God is calling you to parent your child. And so I want to make sure you know that your hands are on the barbell. Like, we're here to assist, we're here to help, you know, raise the weight but golly, parent, push, pull, lift. This is the way that God has handed you. That you would instruct 
your child in the ways of the Lord and that you wouldn't do it in a way that would provoke anger. I've seen that. I've seen legalism destroy children. When you start treating the word of God as a whip, not as something that's good and healthy and right for them. And so whether the call was to the child or to the parent, I hope you see what Paul's saying here in this first uh, few verses. He's speaking to the need to be obedient to Christ, like in the sacred place, when, when no one else is watching, in the most intimate places of your world, are you being obedient to Christ? That that's whether you're a parent, whether you're a child, this call is obedience to Christ. The gospel is transformative work that leads us to obedience to Christ even when no one else is looking. Even when no one else is looking. And and let's pick back up in our text, verse five. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with deep respect and fear. Serve them sincerely as you would serve Christ. Try to please them all the time, not just when they're watching you. As slaves of Christ, do the will of God with all your heart. Work with enthusiasm as though you are working for the Lord rather than people. Remember that the Lord will reward each of us for the good we do, whether we are slaves or free. Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them. Remember, you have the same master in heaven, and he has no favorites. And is the Bible supporting slavery? Is it given a, a green light for slavery? Is it, is it a promotion it's not. It's not promoting slavery in the way we tend to think of slavery. Think um, bond servant, which is a um, means that there's no legal binding contract. There's not someone being owned as property. A bond servant was one that, after working off and paying off a debt, felt so loved and cared for by the the person they were working for that they asked to stay. They they fall underneath and and that they would be cared for by the master was a different kind of relationship uh, than the one that we think of um, because of the value of life they were experiencing. They didn't want to leave, which was why Paul makes the correlation to, as to ser- like serving the Lord. It's a type of relationship um, still exists in many parts of the world. When I was in India, I saw this when, um, just recently, a few weeks ago, when we were in Kenya, we we saw this, and it was actually really cool as we talked to Alice, who, who runs the orphanage. She explained to us a little bit more of the culture, where um, within the, the country of Kenya, 800,000 people have formal employment, and 50 million people live there. Uh, that's a 98.5% unemployment rate. Now, some of you are probably questioning, you are the guy that didn't know that we had 23 chromosomes, so can we really trust it? But it is 98.5%. Um, and what she shared with us is that so many people that, have, that are well, more well-to-do, um, there is an expectation that they would hire help for the home, that they would begin meeting that need within the world that they're living, give people a roof over the head, food in their mouths, and, and, and people do it uh, with a lot less finances than we have here. You know, like, 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 like middle class here, over there, you, you would be expected to, with a little bit you have less left over, is to bring on some help. And, and so um, the, the, think of more of that relationship. It's a working relationship, but it's a, it's a mutual caring for the other. And so it's actually here, it's really seen as a, it's a positive thing um, and an expectation 
uh, for those who have means to, to do. And so now Paul says, if you're the worker, he says, work hard. Work hard. Now, now verse 6 is interesting. From face and value, it looks like, like people-pleasing, right? And where, where, where he says, try to please them all the time. Wait, Paul, are you telling me I need to be a people-pleaser all the time? He's talking about the quality of your work, and he's saying that the quality would be the same quality all the time, whether they're there or not. Do you, see, do you see the caveat that he says, try to please them all the time, not just when they're watching you. He says, don't do this for their human praise. He's trying to pull out a, a distinction that, that we don't work for the approval of man, but we work hard because it's what God has called us to, and it's the right thing for us to do. Whether or not they see you, that you would work far more than satisfactory, whether or not it's in front of people or now, ultimately, Paul is connecting your work to a reflection of your identity in Christ as slaves of Christ. Like, like understand really who you work for. Understand your, your, your greater identity. Do the will of God with all your heart. It seems here that if you are looking to please an audience, Paul would say work for an audience of one. Well, like if, you, if you're trying to please an audience, please the audience of one, the Lord your God. I can remember um, early on in, in preaching ministry, I loved getting the, the great sermon, wow. And, and, and don't get me wrong, like, like encouragement is always still something that, that's just nice. Um, it scratches where my flesh itches. But no amount of human praise could ever outweigh what God thinks. There's a lot of ways we can manipulate a message to get the, the congregation to say, hey, pastor, great, great work. That's, that's what I needed today. There's ways to manipulate that. Um, but if that's the aim, if it's just to get, ooh, that's, that was good. If that's the goal, then the goal was short-sighted and it was shallow and it's cheap. Jesus would say, great, you, you've already had your award. It's done. It's over. It was gone like that. Um, do we work as we're working under the Lord? Like in your own vocation, in your own workplace. Why is it you work hard? Is it because it's a reflection of your ministry? Do we work unto the Lord? Like... Um, I, I've, been, I've been continually sharing this. Like the second half of Ephesians really is Paul saying that, that the gospel, this transformative work, is for all of life. And so if all of life is ministry, then it would make sense to me that where you spend at least 40 hours a week, and that must be ministry stomping grounds, if that's where you're spending a bulk of your time in the week. Outside of your sacred home, if you're spending a great deal of time in the same place around the same people, it's like, there it is. There is your ministry. And so are we, are we serving there as we're serving unto the Lord? Do you see your job as serving God and does pleasing him matter? Or are we trying to get a trophy room here on earth of a bunch of attaboys and girls? The call is still 
obedience. Paul's talking about outside the home. And so how do we get there? How does that happen? Well, verses five and six, I see a call of fear Christ. That word is more of an awe, a reverence. Do Do we revere Christ as we should? Do we see him for all that he is? Do we see him as Lord of our lives? Do we see that our lives ought to be lived in submission to him? Do we see him as our supreme authority? Do we see him as our life giver? And if we had a proper perspective of him, like if we truly saw Jesus for who he was, wouldn't that free us from the praise of others? What if you knew that you were delighted in by God? I I think about that moment when Jesus is going to get baptized right before his earthly ministry in Matthew 4. Right before it started, right before he started feeding people lunch, right before he started giving blind people sight, right before he started allowing deaf people to hear, before all of that, before these prolific sermons, the Father looks at Jesus and he says, this is my son in whom I'm what? Well pleased. If you saw that, I mean, if you really saw that God the Father saw you, and he said, I'm well pleased with you. What does man have to say at that point? What does the opinions of all these other people really matter? Do we have that perspective? Jesus thought this perspective was important. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, he says, don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body. They cannot touch your soul. Fear only God who can destroy both soul and body and hell. Jesus says, hey, do you have the proper perspective? I mean, you're so consumed with what all these other people think. What can they really do? He says, fear only. Only God, and, and, and again, it's an awe, it's a reverence. It's not this, this, I'm so terrified of you. Because he goes on right from there. He begins telling you about this great love that he has. Where he says, I'm so intimately involved with you because I know the hairs that are numbered on your head. He doesn't say, I know how many hairs you have. He says, I know the numbered hairs that are on your head. Which is like, okay, what number was that? Like he knows, like he's intimately that involved with our lives. And Jesus says, have the proper perspective of people and me. See how much more infinitely valuable I am. Jesus regularly moves his people from the temporary to the eternal. He often tries to expand your vision. He says, okay, you're looking and thinking way too small. Let me, let me help you expand that. Let me help you see what's really of infinite importance. And what if we really believed eternity was right around the corner? To quote my least favorite band, Nickelback, what if today was your last day? Could you say goodbye? I mean, what if it really was? What if we really believed that wouldn't we want to live for eternal things? Not temporary at a boy, at a girl, you're nailing it. What if people pleasing meant living in rebellion to God? We would be fools to think that that temptation doesn't exist. 
back at our text, masters, bosses, he says, same idea. There's this call to be obedient to God, whether you're the worker or you're the boss. We don't graduate from our need to obey God. We don't graduate from our need to obey God. You're not going to live long enough where it's like, okay, yeah, that's a great suggestion, but look how awesome I'm nailing life. If anything, spiritual maturity would lead you to more and more dependence on obedience to God. Now, remember back with me, the sacred, the, the, the home. What does God call the child and the parent to? He calls them both to obedience to Christ. Whether young or old, whether you've walked with Jesus for 50 years, he calls us to obedience when no one else is looking. When no one else is looking, be obedient to Jesus. Now, in the secular, the, the, the world outside the home, what does God call us to, whether our profession is the worker or the boss? He calls us to be obedient to Christ, to pursue God's will, to see your world out there as a ministry stomping ground, and that you are there and you exist to obey Christ. And God's will for you, according to 1 Thessalonians, is that you would be sanctified. That, that word means becoming like Jesus. And I just answered the question, plugging your life. What's the goal? It's to become like Jesus. And that's going to require us to know God's word. You can't become what you don't know. Here, Paul seems to believe that catechism is an essential part of our lives, this training or this instruction he believes knowing the instructions is crucial, critical to our formation of becoming like Jesus. Because I don't know about you, but obedience is hard when you don't know the instructions. Like if someone has this hidden rule and they're, they're you know, watching you and observing you and they're holding on to the rules but they never told you. Maybe you've experienced something like that where it's like, okay, yeah, I didn't even know. Like if that's the standard you were holding, yeah. It's hard to live to a standard you don't know and so it's gonna be important that we Know God's word that we might know him all the more. And I'm sure you're tired of me saying it, but the gospel informs us for all of life. And so the instruction is both for the secular and the sacred. That you would model Jesus both in the home and the world. And while compartmentalization sounds appealing and it sounds safe and it seems, oh yes, I just want to do that. It's not what Jesus calls you to. That's not what Jesus called. It's not what we've been called to. And I understand the nuances to this, right? Like more, more of different tasks may be required of you depending on location. You know, um, um, if you're a, a, a law enforcement officer in here, I understand that on the street it's going to be a little bit different than in the home. You know, in the sense of you're probably not walking around the corner like this. <laughs> you know, but work, you might have to do that. You know, or... Um, if, if you're a doctor, you know, you might, the hospital might be a little bit different. But it's, hear me, the, the, the difference is not you. It's the circumstances around you. And then what's required of you, that you would still be that same person. We don't get to compartmentalize our secular and our sacred worlds from who we are. We don't get to, when Jesus transformed you, he didn't transform a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. He didn't give you two worlds. And so I don't know how this may be falling on you this morning. Maybe for you, uh, you hear this and you think, wow, you know what? 
I kind of live a duplicitous life. I'm trying to live and have the best of both worlds. And truth be told, um, I am two very different people in my home, in my work, and maybe even the church. And so where, where do I begin? Which element of my life needs to change? You guys ask the best questions at the end. Um, any part, maybe all the parts that don't look like a reflection of Jesus. What needs to change? Any and maybe all parts that don't look like a reflection of Jesus. Any part, maybe all the parts that are living in disobedience to God and his word. And so how do I do that? Look to Christ. I mean, over and over, this passage is saturated with unto the Lord, to Christ. Understand the words, Jesus is Lord. Not Jesus is a good teacher, not Jesus is a good philosopher, not Jesus is, you know, makes me feel good, not a guy who just has some good ideas. No, see Jesus as the highest authority in your life, that obedience to him matters more than anything else. Maybe you're sitting here and you say, Jesus is not Lord of my life, but why would I want him to be? I'm going to invite you to become a bondservant. I'm going to invite you to become a bondservant. He loves you. He died for you, not to add a number to his following. It's not an ego builder for him, but because of his great mercy and his loving kindness, Ephesians tells us. He loved you. He laid down his life for you that you might know him. But we marvel at that. You know, there was this thing, sin, that separates us from God. It's this cosmic chasm that's too far to bridge and, and a, a lifetime of good efforts and trying harder and, and trying to build your way back to God. It's just a faint effort. You'll never do it. And yet God, in this, this great love story, the Bible's a love story. It ends with a wedding. It's the union of, of man and God, and, and they will be his people, and he will be with them, and God will be their God, and death will be no more. That chasm, this, this destructive, this, this chaos that the world is in, we've been offered a ransom to get out. Jesus builds the bridge as he walks across to it. And he offers you, he offers you in. He offers you life now and forever. And so if you've operated in the brokenness of the world and sin has been your story, Jesus has made a way. And he invites you not in to crack a whip on you, but he, he invites you in that you might experience more life. Jesus says, I have come that you might have life and life more abundantly. And so the way of Jesus is not burdensome. It's life-giving. So you've been invited into the greatest journey that's happening in the cosmos right now, that God is doing a work in our world. And he's drawing men and women to himself and he invites you to be a part of that. And so um, there's no magical words. 
but if you were to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and what that means is, okay, I'm submitting my life to him, and I'm gonna follow him, and I might not be perfect at it, and when I fall down, and I will, and it will happen, grace will be met for you. So don't think you're signing up for perfection. It's not, he's not gonna be done with you the moment you fail. He lavishes his grace upon us. And so that's your invitation this morning. Let me pray for us. Lord, we come before you this morning grateful to have your word in front of us, your revelation to us that we might know you. Lord, I think of these, this text, I think of how often and how easy it is to be gripped by the fear of people, to be consumed by their approval. Lord, would we see you for all that you are. You are the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, that everything exists by the word of your power. There's not anything in all of creation that you don't say mine. You are the God with a cattle on a thousand hills. And you are the light of the world that gives light to all mankind. You are from an eternity past. And you have this plan. And your word tells us it's something that you've delighted to do. You're excited about this. It's what you love. And it's saving people. God, help save us today. For those that might be here that don't know you, how would you save them today? Would you justify them, declare them righteous? And Lord, for us, your, your sons and your daughters, the ones that have surrendered ourselves to you, that have said that Jesus is Lord, God, save us. Continue to save us. Save us from the need of approve, approval from others. Save us from fear, save us from shame, save us, save us, God. We need, this text feels impossible. But Lord, all the more would we pursue obedience to you, whether we have eyes on us or not. And would you receive all honor, all glory, all praise through our lives as we live to be obedient to you. Help us, Lord. It's all in your name. Amen.